The Bible takes place in what we would now call in the Western world, the Middle East, right? So it takes place in Afro-Asia. It takes place in Afro-Asiatic people, black and brown, politically black, physically brown people who were colonized, right? So, so I guess I just, what I realized is that, well, you know, in a lot of ways, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't, like evangelicalism doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And what matters is brown Jesus. And what matters is the text that rises from these brown colonized indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And I do believe the truth of that text. What I do not believe um, is much of the interpretation of that brown colonized indigenous text by the colonizers. Hi, my name is Leo WT, and you have found your way to the Conversations Podcast. Conversations exist to create spiritually-minded conversations about life. We desire to create safe space for dialogue and community. We desire to come together regularly and intentionally to generate conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. Everyone is welcome at the conversation. Hey friends, how are you? It's Leo WT here back with a new hair color and a new episode of Conversations. In case you haven't been here before, what we do on Conversations is regular and intentional, spiritually minded conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. And the main point that I really want you to know before we jump on into this is that absolutely everybody's voice matters at the conversation. Also, no one has to sit at the kids table and no one gets table scraps we don't go for just mere tolerance here we go for full acceptance and so everybody's voice is accepted and welcome at the conversation so that's what we do if you don't know me i'm not sure how you found this but i'm leo wt i am a hairdresser from rural western new york i'm also in my 16th year of pursuing ordination One of these days, someone's just going to say yes after I keep asking. Uh, I am also a non-binary person of transmasculine experience who grew up in the white American evangelical church, um, socialized as an evangelical female and as a pastor's kid. So I bring a lot to this conversation and I put that out there in specific terms because I haven't quite before. But what we're here for for today's conversation is a conversation about, um, you know, race and evangelicalism and the American church. And for that, I could think of no better person than my my content area expert friend who happens to be my real life friend, weird, um, Miss Lisa Sharon Harper. And I'm gonna let her introduce herself before we dive in. Thank you so much, Leo. So good to be here with you and, and really great to be in conversation with your audience today. Uh, my name is Lisa Sharon Harper, and I am the author of several books, including The Very Good Gospel, uh, which came out in 2016, and most recently, um, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. I'm also the founder and ex- um, president of Freedom Road, which is an LLC. We, we're a consulting group. We um, coach, train, consult, and um, we do pilgrimages and develop forums, design forums, in order to help bring people together to have common experiences that lead to common understanding and also common action toward a more just world. So our whole thing is narrative. We, we believe in the power of story to shape the world because it shapes worldview. And so our, we're all about reconciling narrative. Um, bridging the narrative gap is how we put it. So I am just really, really excited um, to be here with you 
all of all of our work is about that. So I imagine that that's what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. And I actually loved, uh, I posted a, a post today just to kind of tell people that I was um, recording today, because if you don't post it on social media, it doesn't happen, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, it's like a tree in the forest. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I posted a quote of yours and it said um, something to the effect of, uh, God, I'm going to butcher your own quote in front of you, but uh, narrative distance is the difference between the story that we tell ourselves and what reality is, I think was the quote. Yeah, the narrative gap is that is yes. that distance, yes. Yes, and that really struck me because that kind of sums up what I would love to chat with you about today. And that is like the, this intersection of, of racial conversations and American, particularly white evangelicalism, because I think the white evangelical church, uh, you know, as a universal kind of organization really sees itself as one thing. But what I really see once I've stepped back out of that is I see people literally saying that George Floyd shouldn't have been a criminal. And I see people saying that they don't support Black Lives Matter because BLM supports queer people. And I think the white American church or white evangelical church has lost, lost the plot in a lot of ways. But mm -hmm. I grew up in that church. And as a queer person, I've had to give away so much of what I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And at this point, I've spent long enough dealing with the church. Now the church has to deal with me and I'm not giving up anything more. So it's up to the church how to reconcile my presence in the church and, and we're going to move forward with that. But I know that you, you know, not, not to out you here, but I know that you identify as a black evangelical and I'd like to kind of start <laughs> there. <laughs> I love that's so funny that you would call that outing, but I, mean, I guess in some situations, yes, it is like, being outed. I mean, here's the thing. Yes, I'm a black evangelical. Um, I think it's dishonest of me to say I'm not evangelical. That really is the foundation of my theological understanding of the world. Um, I, I met Jesus in the context of an evangelical um, church, even a white evangelical church, and actually a little bit fundamentalist actually, now that I understand that, and was raised up, you know, discipled um, in the context of Campus Crusade for Christ, solidly a white evangelical. Um, and, you know, and then also InterVarsity, went on staff with InterVarsity, was on staff with them for 10 years hmm. and learned, learned how to exegete scripture there. And that's literally, I think, one of the most valuable things that I got in that experience. Um, but, you know, I also got a lot of the other stuff that I've had to work through and, and process. And I think that where I've, what I've come to, Leo, is that um, I, I, I am honest about my own foundations, my theological foundations. I'm honest about my approach to the world and to the text in particular and to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it is that approach. It is the approach that honors the scripture that actually believes it, which is a, a you know, fundamentally an evangelical thing right. that believes the truth of the scripture and actually really does believe um, in the, in the reality of conversion and the reality of moving from darkness to light, moving from, um, from, from unknowing to knowing, but it's not even a knowing and I think that white, this is where white folks get it wrong, I think, is it's not a knowing in your head as I know all the things, but it's a, whew, like there's a knowing in the Hebrew sense was, was kinetic. It was in the body. It was an experience. Mm -hmm. And so it's an experience of God, not having an experience of God that, that is full and rich and connected to being reconnected. And I don't think, honestly, I don't think evangelicalism is the only way to get that. But I think that evangelicalism has a category for that and actually sounds it.
speaks it. And that's, that was my experience of, of conversion. And, and so that's, that's the reality of who I am. But what I've come to also understand is that Jesus was not an evangelical, right? Paul (laughs) was not an evangelical, Um, you know, hardly anybody, actually nobody, not one person in the entirety of scripture was an evangelical. So why do I, or why did I, I don't so much anymore at all, but why did I used to feel so like it was so important to save evangelicalism, you know, or, or to bring evangelicalism back to its root? Well, I think that that, 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 that still had the, the vestiges of white supremacy, Western supremacy um, that was in me. And I was believing some of the, the foundational lies that are right there. Um, in that, in that logic, the logic that says that um, evangelicalism is the thing, and so we need to protect it. We need to make sure it's right, and all of that. Um, well, that's kind of crazy because evangelicalism is one, one movement within the church um, over two thousand years, yeah. and it's a movement in the church that wasn't even grounded in the geographical and political, and um, and. Uh, bodied era and place that the Bible actually takes place in. The Bible takes place in what we would now call in the Western world, the Middle East, right? So it takes place in Afro-Asia. It takes place in Afro-Asiatic people, black and brown, politically black, physically brown people who were colonized, right? So, so I guess I just, what I realized is that, well, you know, in a lot of ways, it really doesn't matter it doesn't like evangelicalism doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And what matters is Brown Jesus. Mm-hmm. And what matters is the text that rises from these Brown colonized indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And I do believe the truth of that text. What I do not believe um, is much of the interpretation of that Brown colonized indigenous text by the colonizers. Yes. And I think I think you've hit on something really there and it starts to go to the narrative gap concept. Right. Um, Right. Which is this is where the story took place. And if you look at evangelicalism, right, if you think of the the history of church uh, of the church, right, the entire put it on a timeline and you parallel that with stages of development in humans. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the evangelical church is not even a toddler like we are on the opposite end of the spectrum of where the church started so not only chronologically are we separated we're geographically separated we're 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 racially separated honestly and by racially i almost mean more that more than skin tone i mean from uh, different positions of soap holding of social capital right because white people hold social capital and the people in the text did not necessarily hold social capital and a lot of people in the bible that held the social capital were the were the sort of object of the parables if you will and so i feel like there's a narrative gap between what white evangelicalism thinks and where the where the the faith and the bible came from yeah i mean there is that that that's that's the basic truth that's that's the truth ruth <laughs> I mean, I think I think that when you when it really comes down to it, um, you have a brown colonized indigenous text that was ultimately really about what um, what is God's purpose on earth. God's purpose on earth 
um, was to free, liberate the image of God on earth. Um, and we see that if you trace the story, the narrative from page one to the very last page. And, and not only that, but also to reconcile all relationships that were broken at the fall. Yep. And the fall is Genesis three. It's like the third chapter of the whole, whole dealio, like the whole book. And so starting with that third chapter, everything breaks down. And the whole rest of the text is God's not just redemption for humanity plan, but redemption for all of creation plan. And how do we bring it all back into right relationship um, wow. with, um, with God, with each other, between um, ethnic groups between genders, all genders, hello, somebody. Um, and then also um, between nations. And we see all of those things break down in the first, the first 14 chapters right after, after the fall. So the rest of it is all about how do we bring it back together? How do we repair what domination broke in the world? Because that's really at the heart of what we would commonly call sin, as I, as I understand it, as I've come to understand it. That to that sin is whatever breaks the relationships mm. that God declared Tob Meod at the end of chapter one. Tob Meod is is forcefully good, and that goodness exists between things, not inside the things. Right. So this is all um, outlined in my book, The Very Good Gospel. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that honestly, that changes everything. And it's not the read of white evangelicals. It's not the read, quite honestly, of the white church, like of the European church. I think they literally just missed this. Yeah. And I think they missed it because of their social location, because they were reading the text. They were interpreting the text from the social location of Caesar, yes. from the social location of Pilate, not from the social location of Brown Jesus. Yeah, it's it's so wildly fundamental to me that we have pictures of Swedish Jesus everywhere. Like this dude is not real and you're basing your faith on him. Like what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah and unfortunately, that's like my denomination, my, my former denomination that did that. Like it was an evangelical covenant church guy from Sweden um, who who decided to do a picture of Jesus and it you know, I don't think he realized it was going to go viral, especially in an age before computers, before but, right. but even telephones, but, yeah. but it, but it did. And, um, and it is now the most prolific picture of Jesus. And, and I think that that's the case, not just because of, you know, technology, but because of internalized white supremacy that wants to see Jesus as the ultimate white person, Swedish, right? Like um, blonde hair, blue eyed, or even like, like silver eyed, like no color in his eyes, right? So um, depending on who you're looking at and like lily white skin. And so I, I don't know. I think, I think that from the minute that Christianity um, was claimed by Constantine, mm -hmm. it was basically co-opted. It was stolen. It was a stolen religion. And whenever you get, um, when, just imagine like when you get the emperor um, has the final say in what is declared orthodoxy. And that's what Constantine did. He yep. determined what was, what, how the text was to be interpreted. And that's something else, right? Yeah, right. That's some big balls. <laughs> some deep stuff, right? So, yeah. so when you have the emperor determining what this or that means, 
Well, then when you get to Luke 4, and it says, this is why I've come, and Jesus makes it plain and simple, um, you know, for the poor, um, for the oppressed that are being oppressed by Rome, well, then what's the interpretation? Being spiritually oppressed. Of course. Spiritually poor, right? So white evangelicals, um, you know, in America come out of a movement in Europe that was actually meant to democratize power and the actual uh, benefit of it, there's always a benefit in the original um, sense, right? The benefit of it in Europe um, back in the 1600s when it first developed in Sweden and, and other places was that it democratized power. It took power out of the hands of just the clergy and it put the word itself in the hands of everyday people and said, you interpret it. But the problem was the, 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 their, their leaders, the leaders of how to interpret um, uh, the text at that time, I mean, you know, just in terms of the large, the large sense, Luther and Calvin, um, they were reading it and interpreting it themselves from the social location of the halls of academia, the halls of empire in Europe. And it strikes me now um, that there's a problem when Calvin's Switzerland um, is interpreting the scripture right at the same time that the transatlantic slave trade is developing. And it does not cause his nation, which is not, has no separation of church and state, to outlaw the financing of the slave trade. Yeah. Um, you know, so the Switzerland becomes a major financier of the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade. No, they didn't own slaves, but they funded the thing, right? Like they, they funded the project that sold my ancestors away from their people and land forever. They funded a project. People who went to church, people who called themselves Christians, um, people who were deacons and elders in those churches, and maybe even pastors um, in those churches, um, funded the crushing of the image of God on oh. earth. And that, I mean, that's, that's what fundamentally what, what racism and, and, and even, you know, slavery is an institution, racism is an idea and race is a concept. It, it is, it's that flattening of the image of God. And th this is who is God's, right? I mean, we, we built it into the language of America, right? I mean, we, you know, three fifths of a person. And if you go further, we never really rectified the fact that we called natives merciless savages, right? We never rectified those things, right? Mm -hmm. And so now we're in a place, right, where we've had this conflation of empire and church, and we, and, you know, Sweden exported it right to America, and we built this new society with the the perfect ways that sees itself as inerrant, right? And now we fast forward to 2020, and mm. we have a a blatant race issue in America. And anyone who denies that, I just actually don't have time to engage with. I don't believe in niceties if you don't believe in the value of everybody's humanity. Like that's where I'm at, and mm. and I think it's really deeply important that. Uh, we have black, you know, evangelicalism, black, uh, you know, churches, these sort of progress, because as I understand it um, from some recent studies with Dr. James Cone uh, um, out of Union and then some some of his people uh, that he mentored and stuff, like black is an identity, right? Uh, and black is a political stance. And I think it's really important that we have that in the church. 
can you talk to me a little bit about what it means? Because you you know you mentioned uh, black politically black uh, and brown racially, or I might have mixed those up. But physically talk, brown, politically black. There we go. Can you talk to me about that phrase and why that phrase must be coupled with the word evangelicalism? Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I well, I don't. <laughs> but why, why black? Why, in my case, you know, black evangelical as opposed to uh, white evangelical? Well, I think a lot of it is. When you ask the question of white evangelicalism, white evangelicalism is showing itself um, to be more um, a religion of whiteness mm -hmm. than a religion of Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's not actually, uh, uh, it's not a religious tradition, um, unfortunately, at least in the last 50 years that has been really faithful to the text. And instead, it's been faithful to the text as they interpret it, um, and they have interpreted it in ways that um, that either completely justify um, all manner of evil, aka Southern Baptist Church um, yeah. putting off and becoming a denomination in the first place in order to um, to preserve slavery. Yeah, and then we're going to say CRT isn't real. I listened to a podcast roundtable you did about the Southern Baptist Convention and CRT, and that was chef's kiss. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. And then, or you know, but it's not even just only, it's not only Southern Baptist, right? Every single denomination in America, mm -hmm. every denomination split over the issue of slavery. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, and, and then Jim Crow, when you, when you look at the civil rights movement, it's the, it's the PCA church, right? That actually do, it, it is born um, out of the desire not to, to desegregate, right? So they, it is born in order to preserve pure white space. Okay. So, right. So when, and these are, these are two of the denominations at the heart of white evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. And, um, but there are many more and, but those are two that are emblematic for me. Um, and so when you look at white evangelicalism, they have found a way to either use the scripture to completely justify other, in other words, by twisting the meaning of it, um, the whole systematic theology thing, which really what it does is it creates a system that is not from the text, Correct. that is laid on top of the text, and then it manipulates the text to mean things that nobody ever said that this is what it meant in the text, right? Like, it's just, just not there. And so right, it's just not there. So if I really do, if I actually honor the brown colonized indigenous people who wrote the text, I will read their actual words mm -hmm. and I will ask, what did they actually mean? Mm -hmm. And then I will bow to that. Mm -hmm. And I will believe that. Mm -hmm. um, I will believe what they say if I honor them, or at the very least, I will believe I will believe that what they said about what they thought was true was true about what they thought was true. Like, you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So Listen I guess what I'm, yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is that um, a black evangelical, on the other hand, um, black, black Christian faith was really born um, in the turn of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was the catalyst for the second great awakening. Um, I'm sitting here in the city of Philadelphia, the, um, the traditional territory of the Lenny Lenape people, um, and um, I'm grateful for their stewardship of this land for thousands of years before it was ever discovered. And in the midst of that time, of the, in the last 200 years, um, 250 years, um, something was born here that changed the world, um, the Black church. 
the black denominations were born here in Philadelphia. And it was born out of protest of white evangelicals. It was born out of protest um, at St. George's Methodist Church. There was a walkout that was staged by Absalom Jones, Richard Allen, and James Fortin. And they were the three men who, who, who tried, they, they staged um, uh, this, this amazingly powerful protest that goes down in history because all they tried to do was to pray. All they wanted to do was to pray at the altar at the same time that the white parishioners prayed. And those white parishioners um, would not pray with them. And they were asked to leave. So you know what they did? They left the freaking church yeah. and they took all the black folk with them. And so there was a walkout. And then that, that formed um, two split off churches that they, they split off from that. One was the AME denomination and the other was the black Episcopals. Um, okay. Still within the Episcopal, um, you know, tradition, but but a black stream of Episcopal Episcopalian churches, and the first of which was St. Thomas Church, which was um, settled, uh, founded by Absalom Jones. Okay. So, so when you look at black evangelical faith, that's where it comes from, and it is it's that church, it's those actual churches, it's it's Bethel AME, it's St. Thomas and others that literally catalyzed the Second Great Awakening. Um, and it's the reason why they are the reason why when Charles Finney, you know, starts his, his famous, um, you know, revivals that, that in the second great awakening, um, intricately, um, intrinsically kind of woven into the message of the second great awakening is we got to get clean. Slavery is making us unclean as a society. We've got to, we got to get clean. And that means we need to renounce slavery as a part of our coming and falling at the, at the feet of Jesus and entering the kingdom, the reign of God, the rule of God. Because how can you say that you are following God, that you are submitting to the reign of God while you are subjugating the image of God on earth? That's you mental should. gymnastics that I, I can't, I can't do. And you I can't. I don't think they can be done, to be honest with you. And part of my part of my great awakening, right, was um, was coming out. Uh, and you you actually met me in that phase when I was coming out, whether you knew it or not. I had I stepped foot into the church that we, you know, had, you know, shared community with um, several just several days after I came out as a lesbian. Um, mm. And when I realized that moment of intersection was it was the moment from which my whole paradigm shifted and I couldn't go back. Right. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I was suddenly uh, an other and I'm not trying to say that I lost the privilege of whiteness because that's not something you lose. Right. But I was othered uh, by the church. And then that caused me to look at all the other systems and, and or the other people that have been othered by the system of church, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is in particular what I find from like Black liberation theology and the, the history of the Black church as I've been studying it in school, right? I'm not saying I'm an expert. I'm not going to, certainly not going to tell you I'm an expert, but I went to a seminary on purpose that was intersectional. And I, in my class, we've been studying Black liberation theology. And I think that there is something there's something about the gospel that's centrifugal, right? The faster the gospel spins and the, the more that it kicks into gear, the more the gospel is located in the margins. And so when I began to identify that I was part of the margin, 
I began to link arms with those who are around me on the margin. And whether it be, you know, Latinx organizers in Harlem, uh, whether it be Black evangelicals, whether it be Native Americans, I think that that experience is it's critical to the text and it's part of what we need to save this institution known as the church, which is mildly up in flames at the moment in my mm-hmm. assertion, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's actually very, very true. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts. Um, I, I have to admit, this might be a lot like low key embarrassing, but I have an organizer crush on you. <laughs> um, and I'm really, <laughs> Like the people oh, that I consider rock stars are not necessarily on TV or making millions, but they're the people in the streets doing shit. And mm-hmm. you're always doing shit. So talk to me a little bit about how your blackness and your evangelicalism speaks to your organizing and speaks to your social justice efforts. Because frankly, I think that's what moves us forward as a church and a society in this moment. So talk to me a little bit about how you know those identities push you out into the world. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's like, for example, I decided to write Fortune um, because, uh, you know, it traces 10 generations of my family's story. And I've been doing this research on my family for 30 years. And I never started this thinking I would write a book, right? Um, But I was compelled to do it simply because of who I am. I wanted to know who am I as an African-American woman. Um, When I showed up in Ferguson, I showed up because my people were hurting. You know, mm-hmm. when, I, when I marched in, in, in Charlottesville and, um, and wrote about it later and then also went and, um, and, and did some training in Baltimore, it's because my people are hurting. Mm-hmm. And, and the more that we live in a world where my people are hurting, then the more we live in a world where my nieces and nephews will have to struggle in the same way that I did. And my mom and my dad, and my junior, my grandmother and great grandpa, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't want that for them. I want my nieces and nephews to be in a, in a world where they have the ability to really flourish, to really come into the dream that God had for them when God created them. But in every generation, this is something I found actually in the research for Fortune, there were laws and structures that were passed every single generation that were intent on two things. One, and and this is primarily intent on um, establishing, protecting and entrenching white male bank accounts. Mm. Bottom line, that's always the bottom line. And so at all costs, at all costs. And and we've actually even seen this even, you know, goes all the way from 1682 to 16 to um, 2021 with, you know, in the book, um, but you can see it, you can see it in, in um, you know, January 6th is that's what that is. That is white men acting to protect their power. That's what it was money and social power and political power, um, nope. but especially political power, right. And money. Nope. And so, nope. and the second, you know, the second thing, so it's, it's the protection of whiteness, the power of whiteness. And then secondly, all of those laws, every last one of them compromised the the call, the divine call and capacity in everybody but white men Mm -hmm. to flourish. So, you know, so those very, the very first race law Mm -hmm. is also the very first gender-based law on Mm -hmm. American soil. 
And that very first race law and gender law is also the very first law written about citizenship on American soil. So you literally have an intersection of those three things in that very first law. And it comes up again and again and again. Um, and, And that was in 1662, like in the very first colony in Virginia. Um, then, you know, flash forward to um, 18, seven, sorry, 1787, the first Congress, um, and you have the three-fifths compromise. And a, a couple of three years after that, you have the very first immigration law. And immigration law was just like, oh my God, like you just can't get more clear than this, right? Like they were like, if you don't get it by now, let's just make it clear for you. They said, the only people who can become naturalized citizens in this land are white men of good character, which meant Christian, right? So, so basically meant Christian. So, yeah. so or, or at least deist, right? So what they, what they were, what were they, they were saying was the only true humans, because what it means to be human theologically, we know is to be called to exercise dominion in the world, to be called to exercise stewardship of the world, agency in the world, make decisions that impact the world. And naturalization, that's what that gets you. Naturalization gives you the right um, and the protection of those rights to exercise stewardship that shapes the nation. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. when they limit stewardship and we limit naturalization to white men, I mean, it's it is again, it is race, gender, and citizenship overlapping in one law. Would you mind sharing that law? I'm curious. I, I would like to know what that was. That very first one. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, I love that. I love talking about that. So that's 1662. And in 1662, um, this, this really um, fateful day happened on, on this soil that we now call America. You have to go back actually a little bit to, to, uh, to understand the story. So uh, Virginia was born as a, as a colony, right, in 1608. Okay. Um, so 1608, you have the establishment of the Virginia colony with Jamestown. And... Um, about 22 years after that, in 1630, a young girl is born just across the river from Jamestown, and she is mixed race. She's black and white. She is, um, her mother is African and her father is an English citizen, white guy. Um, his name is Thomas Key, who actually around that time was also a member of the House of Burgesses, which is the, the legislature of this British colony. And so, so she is his daughter and the colony actually forced him to recognize her as his daughter, which is interesting. You know, it's something going on there and she got baptized. He baptized or had her baptized and recognized as his daughter in the church and got baptized. So the thing is though, this became the common practice. So a lot of white guys were raping their enslaved black women, um, African women, and, and therefore producing mixed race children who they were recognizing as their children and having baptized because that was the way of it, but they were also enslaving them. And so Elizabeth Key was enslaved to Thomas Key. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and, and homegirl just said, you know, wait a minute. Like she, she learned the law. She said, wait a minute. English law says that English citizenship comes through the father mm-hmm. and the father, um, you know, that's, uh, so it's established through the father and if you are a British citizen, you cannot be enslaved. Mm-hmm. And if you are a Christian, you cannot be enslaved. Yep. So Elizabeth Key was like, 
I cannot be enslaved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Y'all got to set me loose, right? So got to do it. She, she took it to court and she won. Ooh. She won. She won. And, and that she, so she took it to court around 1650. And then 12 years later, 1662, um, the, the Virginia House of Burgesses, Thomas Key has since passed away. He's no longer there. But, you know, this planter class, which is also the legislative class, same mm-hmm. people, um, they said, you know, they all of a sudden have this flood of people leaving their plantations, their mixed race children that they had produced by raping the black women are now leaving because of this they're taking their cases to court and winning so these lawmakers these law abiding lawmakers what do you think they would do you think that they would like okay well the law says this is how citizenship happens and so they they are citizens and so they can go you know what we're going to do we're just going to transition into you know a fee-for-service actual capitalist society like that's what we're going to do they could have done that. They could have done justice, right? But they didn't. Instead, they changed the law. Yeah. <laughs> so instead, wow. they decided to shift where citizenship comes from. So citizenship would no longer come through the line of the father, as is required by English law. And this is an English colony. Now, citizenship would come through the line of the mother, as it did in Rome. So they shifted to Roman law of partis and what Rome has to do with Virginia. Somebody please tell me, I don't know. But they decided to grab from Roman law in order to be able to keep free labor. And they added two words that created race-based slavery in perpetuity. So they said, if, if your mother is enslaved, then she is not a citizen. And you are not a citizen because now citizenship comes through the line of the mother in perpetuity. So your children and children's children to the thousandth generation and beyond will be, will not be citizens and therefore will be able to be enslaved. That's absurd. And that was 1662. So when they passed the 13th amendment, then, you know, flash forward to, um, to 16, sorry, 1865, when they passed the 13th Amendment, they actually, in that moment, they're now overturning that law. They're overturning the 1662 law passed in Virginia and all of the race laws that were passed after that. But they left that loophole. So the loophole was except in the case of imprisonment. So now citizenship is now Um, You have the rights of a citizen, except in the case of imprisonment. And that's how they got around it. So after, um, you know, after Reconstruction, Reconstruction ends because of this compromise that they did that actually compromised us. Yeah, Uh, not a great compromise in the history of compromises. Yeah, well, I mean, just like the, just like the compromise, the three-fifths compromise, the compromise of 1877 was similar in that it compromised the black bodies. Mm-hmm. And what it said was, okay, South, um, we, will, we will take our federal troops out of the South in order for you to play nice with us in the, in the Congress. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they did. They said, okay, we'll play nice if you take them out. And, and you can deal with your race problem in your way. Mm-hmm. So they did. And so that hey, is what, right, that's when the rise of the Ku Klux Klan happened. That's when um, the thousands of lynchings Um, Within about 40 years, that's when you have the establishment, not even 40, like more like 20 years. That's when you have the, you start to have the Confederate statues that are going up all over the South. 
reclaiming the land uh, for the lost cause. Um, and, and that's when you have peonage or convict leasing established. And peonage leverages that loophole in the 13th Amendment. And it says, we're going to lower the bar of, of criminality um, in order to fill our prisons with free labor. Yep. Because in prison, they are not protected. They are not by the, by the, um, by the protections of citizenship. And so they can be enslaved in prison. Yep. So what, what was the prison? The prison was the plantation they were just set free from. Absolutely. Yeah. So Alabama, um, around 1895, like 80-something percent of Alabama's GDP was coming from convict leased labor, coming from peonage. And because what they did is they had a steady stream of Black men, right. boys, mostly right. boys, that they would pick up off the street for sitting on a park bench for too long and call it vagrancy and throw them in jail, not, not mark the date. Um, and, uh, and, the, and their policy was to bury them where they drop because there's always more. That's absurd. I actually read somewhere that it, I think it was Mississippi that didn't officially adopt or accept the 13th Amendment until like the 2000s. I was, I have a class uh, this semester called Public Theology and Racial Justice, in which I've been doing a lot of reading on sort of American history and how this how this issue of race and theology plays out in the public sphere. And the things I've learned are absolutely horrifying. I, I mean, we've read The Color of Law. Uh, we've read White Rage, a lot of really good stuff that shows how this sort of racism is encoded in mm -hmm. our laws. It is right there. It's and I looking at looking at it that way if the church doesn't speak truth to power because that's what prophets were ultimately called to do prophets didn't prophesy some eschatological future if you look at the old testament in the hebrew context prophets spoke truth to power of their day and yeah. so if we are not speaking truth to these racist racially coded laws we're not the church yeah really I true so far as to say that yeah no we're not we're not we're not doing our job as the church Oh. You know, I, I think it's in today's world, you know, everybody is so divided and everything is so politicized as in part, not politicized. It's always, I think it's always political, Existence but, is but it's partisan yes. and, um, and, and it's also propagandized, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so the church is actually, particularly the white church is experiencing like, like writhing, like they are writhing to try to figure out how to speak truth without, without completely splitting the church. So they are, they are in a place right now where they are trying to decide what is better, numbers and dollars or truth. Yes. Which is likely going to make an exodus of both numbers and dollars. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, my, my constant drumbeat for decades, actually, because it's not a new problem at all. It is the problem. It's the thing that's been holding back teaching on issues of race for decades, not just, not since Trump really had nothing to do with it. It's just, this is the reality. It's just, it's on steroids because of Trump. Exactly. But I think that what I've been saying to, um, to the church for so long is ultimately the question is really not how many people are you willing to lose or how much money you're willing to lose. The question really is, who are you worshiping? Mm -hmm. Like, who are you worshiping? What are you, who are you, whose, um, whose kingdom are you worshiping? Are you worshiping money, mammon, 
or are you worshiping brown Jesus? Yeah. And that's, that's that's it. That's, that's the whole question, right? That's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I can't, I live, um, I live knee deep in back the blue country. Um, which is really funny because I didn't think Avatar was that great that it should inspire a whole movement, but whatever. Okay. Um, but th- there was blue people in Avatar, so yeah, yeah. I live knee deep in back the blue country, and in an, in an era or in a place where all of the churches, the community wide consortium, the ministerium, has decided that they're not taking a stand for this. So the only people speaking up are white evangelicals, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like we've lost some sort of plot. And I I really hope that conversations like this uh, with people like yourself will help people see a way forward. You know what I mean? Because I don't think that we can, we're not the church if we're not moving in that direction, you know? I do, and and it matters. It really matters. I mean, that's one of the things that I, found as I was writing Fortune, and even now as I'm now speaking all over the place about it, is that, you know, the image of God is at stake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the image of God, this, this has really come to me in very, very, in, in, in um, stark clarity yep. in the years between writing The Very Good Gospel and, um, and Fortune. Mm-hmm. Um, in The Very Good Gospel, I talk about um, the, the image of God and dominion and all of that. But one thing that struck me in the years since is that the image of God, the Salem of God, um, was supposed to be a marker of where God rules, right? And, and we knew that. I mean, I, I, I've talked about that for decades. Mm-hmm. But the thing that really struck me is that it's also, it was also understood, the image of the king was mm-hmm. understood to be a, a marker of the health of the kingdom, mm-hmm. of whether or not there was war against that kingdom happening mm-hmm. and at that time. Because if you saw images of the king that were busted or toppled, melted down, twisted, then you knew that there were there was war against that king happening in the land, right? Like if you had plentiful images on the coins and on the busts as you enter the city, you think, oh, this is a strong empire, right? This is a strong um, a dominion. And so, so I, I started thinking, well, what is it? What is God? How does God see it then? when we pass policies that crush, topple, twist, cover over, um, silence the image of God on earth through our policies, like you know, not fixing immigration reform, like, um, like deciding um, as, as Trump did to protect the police and not the citizens, not the communities that they are policing. Yep. Um, uh, as, when we decide to give a tax break to the top 1% of people making you know, money in, in America and, and then tax, not tax cuts, but program cuts then, pay for those tax um, cuts through um, programs like welfare and um, uh, food stamps as they literally tried to do yeah. um, and social security, cutting social security. These are these are things that, that keep the image of God from po- falling into poverty. And poverty is violent. Like poverty eviscerates mm-hmm. people and families. Mm-hmm. And it is the one of the two fastest ways to crush the image of God on earth. Yeah. Uh, plus, I- 
plus um, refusing, refusing to apologize, even to apologize, let alone offer reparations. Yep. To the only people group that has never received reparations on a federal level yep. for the oppression that we experienced African-Americans. Yeah. Right. So this is, we have not as a nation um, done well by the image of God. And, um, and the church is not only the church, the church is full of citizens mm -hmm. who vote. And I would think, you would think that those who are following brown colonized Jesus yeah. would then um, be about the work of Jesus, which was, I believe, to protect and cause to flourish every image of God on earth. Absolutely. I agree 100%. I, I quite literally could not have said it better myself, but it, it's just the church is full of citizens. So yeah, there is a line between the church and state, but that doesn't mean that the, the, the citizens don't exist within the church. So yeah. I would love to chat with you for like 17 more hours approximately, but I know that we both have things to do. So I'd love to wrap us up here. And I, I always wrap up every episode the same way. I finish with two questions. The second question is your chance to tell us everything about yourself, where we can follow you and where can, we can find you. So that one, don't worry about that one. But the first one is a little bit, uh, a little bit more dense and a little bit more nuanced. But if you had to just get one message across to the people who are watching this like what if they could only watch 60 seconds of this episode what would you want people to take away from this conversation hmm. i really i want people to understand that they have agency even now mm -hmm. in the middle of a time and an era when people are predicting i mean uh, <laughs> then even the news is all about the job of predicting now as opposed to reporting. Yes. And those are two different things, but the predicting, you know, the coming of the GOP and all of this, you know, in November and, and Democrats are gonna lose. And, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really, um, you know, all about trying to protect the Democratic party, but it is really true right now that there is only one party in America that is, that, that is for democracy. And what I find on the very first page of the Bible is a democratization of power with the proclamation and let them have dominion, let all humanity have dominion, which is a very first, it's a first occurrence in all of civilization. Up to that point, dominion had only been given and the image of God had only been given to the kings and queens. And so on the first page of the Bible, we see that the image of God and the call to exercise dominion is given to all humanity. And in our nation, that is at risk in major ways. Um, and we can look like, feel like deer in headlights and we can do nothing. And we can just watch the Mack truck coming toward us. And we can watch our nation run off the cliff of democracy, or we can understand and embrace the, the truth of that first page of the Bible that we were created to exercise agency in the world. We have the ability to choose our future. We have the ability to choose whether or not we are going to keep our democracy or lose it. And, um, but we have got to act. Yeah. And, and there is nothing more powerful than action rooted in our faith. Absolutely. And so let that faith, if you do have faith, let your faith propel you um, into the public square, into the voting booth every single time you have an opportunity and vote 
vote for the image of God, vote for the protection of the image of God, vote for the parties and the people who are committed to protecting the image of God on earth. If we talk much longer, I'm going to have to break out a hanky. I'm going to have to like, <laughs> come on, somebody. It's going to have, it's going to go down. So I, I got to wrap you up. But uh, I'm just saying, if you aren't ordained right now, if you're just like this sort of religious free agent, someone can snatch you up because you could preach. So that's all I'm saying. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I'm saying, my friend. Um, to wrap us up here, where can people go if they, if they love you as much as I do, if they want to follow your work, where can people go to find you, find your work, find more about you or get connected with the efforts you're involved in? Well, the very best place to go to is lisasharonharper.com because you can find everything right there. Um, in order to find out more about the book, just go to fortunebook.us. That's an easy way to think about it, fortunebook.us, or you can find it at lisasharonharper.com. <laughs> so lisasharonharper.com. I'm also on all the socials, you know, Twitter at Lisa S. Harper, and I'm also on Instagram at Lisa S. Harper, or on Facebook at Lisa Sharon Harper. All right. Thank you so much, Lisa. I, I was not being facetious when I said I absolutely am inspired by you as a person uh, and just so grateful to have shared space with you, um, you know, physically and intellectually. I appreciate who you are in the world and you've been a formative force in my life. So thank you uh, for allowing me to peek in and become a better person because of what you've taught me, whether you knew you were teaching or not. Um, I hope you have a fantastic day and I hope you enjoy the day. Everybody else, I hope you watch this at least three times because I'm going to go back and watch it because I know there's stuff I missed. But we'll see you at the next conversation. Have a great day, everybody. Bye, Lisa. Bye-bye. This has been the Conversations Podcast. Thank you so much for joining. If you have any questions or comments or just want to get involved, feel free to join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Conversations Official on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. We're available on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining the conversation.